In partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media, featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Yes, g'day and welcome to Fourth Estate, your weekly dose of all things media, broadcasting right across Australia's community radio network. My name's James Bourne, in the chair for you on this week beginning the 4th of August. August 2014. This week, we take on a legal flavour, delving into the world of injunctions and stolen property. Don't change your dolls just yet. We also include a little bit of kitten coverage, dissecting it all, not just the kittens. Our expert panel, Cassandra Wilkinson, contributor to The Australian and president of FBI Radio. We have Andy Park, journalist with a feed on SBS. Claire Stewart, freelancer for ABC and Fairfax. And joining us on the phone, John Birmingham, columnist for Fairfax and author of He Died with a Falafel in His Hand. Panel, Welcome. Hello. Hello. Well, let's get underway. And we start with the world of injunctions. The debacle over the Victorian Supreme Court's attempt to gag the media from reporting a prominent case continues after news sites in one of the countries related to the case reported details of the injunction, as did a few news sites here. These details were revealed by WikiLeaks last week. Now, being a tiny and poorly resourced community radio program, I think we'll abide by this super injunction, but the massive attention paid to the case after it was revealed by WikiLeaks has ensured that essentially the rationale for seeking the suppression order has been undermined. If you want to discover more out there, listeners in Radio Land, do go to news sites outside the country. We won't take that any further. But what it does do is raise questions about the ethics of such injunctions. So, Cassandra, I'll start with you. When is a suppression of this magnitude actually justified? I think there's plenty of cases where a suppression order makes some sense. A number of those have been listed in some of the articles about this. For instance, if you've got concurrent cases on, you don't want to prejudice a trial. If you have a high chance of people who at this point have only been accused and not found guilty of a crime being subject to some dangerous retribution if they're named. But the thing that makes this quite different is that we actually don't know the rationale. So ordinarily, you know whether there's a good reason for the suppression, and generally, you know, a court-ordered suppression is done not lightly. But in this case, it's the lack of transparency about the decision at all means you simply can't form a judgment about whether your right to know has been infringed for good reason or not. And I think at the moment, in the context of all of the threats currently to our rights um, being proposed in national security laws, the abolition of the right to silence in New South Wales, the anti-association laws in Queensland. In the current climate, I think we need to be a little more paranoid about all civil liberties issues and all public transparency issues. Just going to freedom of the press issues, though, does this have consequences in that sphere, Andy Park? Look, of course it does. I mean, it reminds me of that Donald Rumsfeld quote about, you know, known knowns and known unknowns. And um, to your point, I mean, we frankly don't know the, the context here. And that, that has huge ramifications for press freedom in Australia. And I think it's a bit like the phoenix that no one's seen. You know, we, we can't describe it, feel it, touch it, test the rigour of its methodology. And that's, that's a real problem, I think. And how much of it do you think is due to earlier revelations that that came out also involving WikiLeaks earlier in the year? Claire? Well, that's a tricky question. Uh, Look, I think um, WikiLeaks always throws up a few issues because of the politicisation of it and what they do. But I think in this instance, the court was potentially 
well-meaning in what they were trying to do, but this whole idea that you have the internet and it's so easily accessible everywhere else and WikiLeaks has now done it has basically completely invalidated having it in the first place. And the fact that there are people who are involved in the court order now commenting on it publicly in Australian media throws the whole thing into a bit of an embarrassing light. So, John Birmingham, in a world where we do have the online sphere, are suppression orders essentially redundant? Pretty much so. I, uh, I prefer the, um, the American approach, which, of course, is framed by the existence of their First Amendment to um, the Constitution, where they actually have a freedom of speech that we don't enjoy here. And when they come at these things, uh, they, they tend to come at it on the presumption that everything should be in the open all the time. Now, there are obviously occasions, for instance, during wartime, when you are going to want to suppress information such as the sailing of a convoy, because if you publish it, people are going to die. But uh, other than those really quite severe cases, I, I don't see much point nowadays. These suppression orders have grown out of a time when uh, news tended to travel by sailing ship or steamboat and could take months to move from one part of the world to another and it's just they're they're an anachronism they uh they really should go i mean anachronistic or not they're still legally binding they still have a, a very oh yeah very real that's right if you if you yeah. step out like if we started discussing the the facts of this case now i, I, I doubt anything would happen but we would all be liable to be hauled before the judge and uh, do a bit of porridge for our contempt. Well, News Limited and The Guardian have taken that risk. Why would they have done that, John? I think they're, uh, I think they're testing the boundaries. This isn't the first time that our arcane justice system has come up against the shattering effect of digital technology and the sort of atomization of news delivery over the past 10 or 15 years. I suspect that uh, because of things like the Streisand effect, for instance, they have just decided that they're going to try their luck and they have the deep pockets to fight it in court that 2SCR doesn't have and they've got the gnarly journalists who are quite happy to stand up and make martyrs of themselves because they know, you know, maybe they'll do a couple of weeks inside for contempt, but that's all they'll do. Mm. And... uh, They'll sell some papers out of it. And there's also indications that News Limited and The Guardian are going to work together to protest this injunction. It's a pretty unlikely partnership. Can we expect anything more from that, you think, Cassandra? I I think in this case, possibly. I mean, there's definitely mutual interest here. And the media community is very concerned about the proposed whistleblower provisions that might be in the national security legislation. I mean, for all the jokes that were made about the tone of some of News Limited's response to the proposed Finkelstein regulations, News Limited is deadly serious about a free press and, you know, you can take your shots at certain elements of that campaign, but I think in this case it will work in everyone's favour to have them being out there on the front line trying to keep press freedom, you know, I, I guess putting their resources behind the campaign for press freedom. And do you think that the media needs to take steps to really defend the journalist's right to report, the public right to know? Is it a campaign that maybe our organisation should be taking on? Because the the difficulty that we have is 
There are a lot of great things happening in the fracturing of old media and there's a lot of wonderful news websites, there's a whole lot of interesting new kinds of media content out there, but your big mastheads are really the only ones who can take on an issue like this and have the gravitas and authority to really take that fight right up to the government. You need to have reputation, history, resources and journalists who've got the professional reputation to be able to lend their name to a cause like that and give it the seriousness that it needs in the public debate. Um, as a younger generation of journalists, Andy and Claire, does, does this sort of worry you when threats are being made against your own profession, the, the way you go about your work? Uh, I suppose it would be a mistake to take it that personally. I mean, it's it's a broader, yeah. broader scale than than any of us individuals. So, I suppose younger journo's coming up through universities now would probably realise that this is just part of the landscape. And but I don't think it should be. Of course, it shouldn't. But what what point do you be practical? Does it become part of a trend potentially? The way the government operates, with the way they—I think we've seen that already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, asylum seekers. Scott Morrison's not going <laughs> to return your call, is he? And on Fourth Estate this week, I'm joined by Cassandra Wilkinson, contributor to the Australian, Andy Park, journalist with the feed on SBS, Claire Stewart, a freelancer for ABC and Fairfax, and also John Birmingham, columnist for Fairfax. My name's James Bourne, taking you through Fourth Estate this week, and moving on to. What we've dubbed the age dictaphone saga, maybe dictaphone gate, tape gate, tape gate, dictagate, dictagate, <laughs> dictagate, dictagate for sure. Sorry. <laughs> um, if you're not privy to what it's all about, it goes to the recovery of a dictaphone from a lost property stand at the ALV conference, and it threatens the leadership of essentially the opposition leader in, a, in Victoria, rather. The audio featured a conversation between the former premier Ted Bailey and the Sunday Age's state political editor Farah Tamazan. And it's raised internal tensions in the Liberal Party and internal tensions in the Labor Party as well. This journalist, Tamazin, had recorded an off-the-record conversation, several in fact, with senior political figures without their knowledge, and a tape of the former Premier Bailiou criticising some of his colleagues was publicly leaked last month. Now, the major discussion surrounding this has been essentially a he said, she said, but less in the public eye has been a discussion of the ethics behind recording off-the-record conversations, and which has essentially put us in this situation. In Victoria, it's legal, but ethical opinions differ. And I'll put this broadly to the panel, maybe starting with John. Does off-the-record still mean turn off the recorder and put down the pen, or is it a slightly different meaning these days? It should really be negotiated every single time. Mm. When I, I've done off-the-record interviews, and uh, on occasion I've recorded them but I've always said to the person that I've been interviewing do you mind if I record this because I don't want to uh, mess up the transcription of, of what you're saying that, that, that's the risk you take as both interviewer and interviewee in an unrecorded off the record transcript is that uh, the journalist is going to get it wrong it is really difficult to you know, perfectly recall the details of a 10 minute conversation some people because of the nature of of what they're briefing you about. They don't want to record it, and that's fair enough. Uh, you know, take your notes as, as well as you can. But it, every journalist pretty much has to come to that decision themselves. For myself, I've never, ever recorded somebody without their knowledge when doing journalism. I've recorded a few flatmates without their knowledge, but uh, <laughs> never anybody when I was doing media work. That's a personal, ethical 
that I make, but I don't necessarily expect other people to make that choice. Pretty much any journalist who's worked for more than 12 months will have had the experience of somebody telling them one thing and then turning around in public and saying the complete opposite and making them look like an idiot Mm. uh, a day or two later on. So for our panel, is is it a personal decision that you have to make or do you feel like there is a larger ethical consideration? Two quite separate issues. Mm. I think John's absolutely right that the decision to record comes down to a negotiation between the two parties. There's nothing cast in stone about a written record and an off-the-record conversation if people give their permission. What's at issue is single-party consent in recordings. Uh, Certainly in New South Wales, you can't record somebody without their consent. And I think I tend to take a privacy purist view, even if it's technologically naive, the law ought not to allow you to record people without their permission. I think, though, in... I mean, Victoria, and this is where it happened, A, it is legal, and B, also you have to think about the people that she was having these conversations with, which are very, very media-savvy people. You know, the the guy that ultimately kicked up such a stink about it is the State Secretary of the Labor Party. So he knows exactly how to deal I see, with media. I have a slightly different view. Like, I, I don't feel any sympathy for the people caught up in this, and I, and I think the way the Victorian Labor Party responded, particularly with the sort of deflecting they tried to do in the early days, was disgraceful. But having said that, I worked in political offices for many years, and there was always a knowledge that background was one kind of conversation, off the record was another, and on the record was another. And you formed a judgment about who could be trusted with any of those conversations, but to use those words and have them not mean what people have come to understand them to mean, Mm. that's quite dishonest. We use that judgment based on your relationship and knowledge of them, and I've found that I've only ever used off-the-record with friends because, frankly, you don't tend to get that kind of offer from any kind of public agency, media advisor in in that kind of uh, age. There's been no... I don't know, that's in my experience. And look, you know, Farah is, is a former colleague, so I should declare an interest. But, you know, I was thinking about this before when we were coming in today, and I was doing an interview in Adelaide recently with an academic, and it was on camera, so obviously there's, you know, opt-in is a little less of an issue. Um, but in the middle of this half-an-hour interview, he stopped and said, look, this is not for television, and told me a, a comment. And I didn't know how long that bar lasted, and I kept rolling. But I had to make my own ethical judgment on whether or not it was just that next comment or the next five comments he told me. Mm. So, yeah, it does come down to a personal judgment. But how does the MEAA, you know, provide any kind of guidance if it's that subjective? So what about the retention of what you recorded, though? So the issue here is that there was an off-the-record conversation which she kept and fell into the wrong hands. Mm. Someone says it's off-the-record, do you then delete that as soon as you can or do you keep it for reference? How do you make that? Look, you know, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't deleted it because it happened in the, in the middle of an, a half an hour yeah. conversation of which the, the subject was very cognizant of his participation. But look, I have kept it. Um, I don't plan to leave my hard drive around state offices anytime soon. Or his, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that, that's yeah. The, the choice, I suppose, you make. Um, would we say that the practice of recording all conversations on and off the record modern journalism, is that a common practice or, again, is it sort of a situational one? I think it is. I mean, I I was talking to a few colleagues about it and the consensus was that most of the conversations were either recorded in shorthand or on some kind of recording device. Mm. I mean, I don't... 
Maybe not, but... I don't want to know anything I can't use. I mean, oh. that, that keeps it... Oh, I don't know about that, Andy. Like, there are sometimes it's really useful to have... I, I, I did a story not so long ago for the Saturday paper about um, the patrol boats. They had to take off um, the water because they were starting to crack up. And I, I did some off-the-record uh, talks then with people who could give me information that really helped me frame the way I wrote that story but because of the, the sensitive sort of position they were in they, they couldn't go on the public record and I would have written a very different story if I hadn't had that it, essentially background information it's I, any information is good and it's it's way better if you can get it on the public record but if you can not look like you know an ignorant uh well, fool, by putting something out there which just lacks context that, say, you know, insiders know about. I, I actually, I, I think that's that's valuable. But, think, yeah, you're better off having stuff on the record. Well, I also think that some of the most important information can't be on the record. I mean, you look at the whistleblowing that led to the Police Royal Commission in New South Wales, a Fitzgerald inquiry in mm. Queensland... There are oftentimes people inside, particularly inside public organisations, who simply can't speak on the record. Um, and in those situations, I guess journalists have to make a lot of very difficult decisions, but the public interest is served in some circumstances by people retaining their anonymity. There's also there's a difference, and, and probably people outside the biz don't understand it, between off the record and not attributable. And that's where... You know, for kiddies listening at home, somebody tells you something and they're happy for it to be published but not just not attached to them. Mm. Mm. Well, see, we were having a conversation about that and it appears that the, the people who trained in Victoria have a different understanding of background and off the record to the ones in New South Wales and I don't know whether that's a result of there being different laws about recording and things like that but for me I was always taught in New South Wales that backgrounding was absolutely not to go anywhere near a newspaper it was just so that you had a better understanding of the issue and that on the record or off the record you could pop in a few lines but just make sure they weren't identifiable mm. and it, it seems in victoria from the people i spoke to that's actually the other way around the academic mark pearson wrote in the conversation this week that um it was a sad day for australian journalism because the age editor actually put all sources on notice that they might be secretly recorded next time in, in their defense of this story, do you think that this has done damage to the perceived trustworthiness of journalists to keep confidential conversations just that, confidential? I think, if anything, it sort of slurs the operations of Victorian ALP, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that, you know, yeah, I think it reflects more poorly on, on those political jockeying attempts rather than the practice itself. And Andrew Holden was very uh, upfront and very clear about what, you know, the code of ethics at the age. And mm. I think there was more transparency there than elsewhere. Well, so if I record an off-the-record conversation, it doesn't mean that I'm then going to go and disseminate that to everyone. It's, it's still completely confidential between me and my source. It's just for my use and my knowledge and my record. So, mm. subject to me losing whatever I recorded it on. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty clear from this chat as well as the coverage that it's received throughout the week that there's no sort of consistent message on what should and shouldn't be done, whether that's down to the vagaries of the law or, or down to sort of individual um, approaches to this. But 
could we benefit from a clear statement from the press council or the MEAA on what standards maybe have to be upkept by journalists in, in these sort of situations? I suppose the caveat on everyone deciding what their own level uh, or ethical stance is is that we're all responsible in that minute way for the, the professional standards of our industry. So they're, they're kind of attached to each other. You can't take them apart. Sure. Uh, John, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I don't know that uh, you know many working journalists are going to pay that much attention to the press council. Um, <laughs> they might, just might, you know, cast a side-eye glance at something from the MEAA. But, but again, no, they're much more likely to um, basically to adhere to the culture of whatever organisation they're working in and whatever their, ever, whatever their editor tells them is... Uh, is the way to go. And, and that's what it actually comes down to a lot of the time is gnarly old chiefs of staff and deputy editors growling at young journalists going, you know, you'll do it this way or, yeah, you'll get a kick in the arse. Hmm. Well, on that note, we'll have another little break. <laughs> You're listening to Fourth Estate. Now, uh, let's go to the future of journalism and it seems to be all pessimism and cat videos. Um, now, veteran US journalist Bob Garfield's been in the country and... Um, he said that the future of traditional journalism, particularly at a regional level, is, well, effed, as are legacy publishers and advertising agencies becoming obsolete in the digital age. Um, the conference was the Association of Data-Driven Marketing and Advertising in Sydney, um, and he basically painted a picture of Armageddon, um, with basically journalists being entirely out of work and there being no advertising model for agencies, just essentially making that model irrelevant. Um, and also this week, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas put out an event called uh, Cat Videos Will Save Journalism. And it will ask, essentially, uh, what if it's not just the money to support journalism that's gone, but what if it's the readers gone as well, too busy sharing videos of cats and memes about other things to actually think about real news? Um, so I, I suppose the first question, I think I might put it to Andy Park, the feed not, you know, entirely shy of a cat video every now and again. This is true. We do uh, have Mark Fennell on the show. Are they a viable model? He loves cats. Are they a viable model for real news? Well, I suppose the way that I think about it is we um, get, try to get audience but try to slip in the things that are, we feel are most important. Right. Um, and look, you know, BuzzFeed tries to do the same thing. Whether or not it's your taste, I don't know. And like I was going to say as well, is it just me or is there more money in predicting the future of journalism than journalism itself? Mm-hmm. Like, aren't you just sick of all these comments and you know, conferences spitballing about the future when there's probably work to be done on the ground. Like, here's a new. Have you have you got a, an actually a, a useful idea out of any of that spitballing about the future of journalism? No. Do we need ideas necessarily, or do we need to just keep sort of plugging away uh, no, as we can? That's fairly broad. I mean, yeah. you know, we we sort of started the feed with the the idea in mind that we'd be thinking 30s, um, and that sort of slipped as we realised that there's not a market for it, like. <laughs> It was also quite insulting to call anyone thinking 30s. Um, so maybe maybe there is this idea, whether or not it's uh, one that's toted at conferences about the future of journalism, but the bitter and the sweet, you know, you've mm. got to somehow get an audience and the measure of a good democracy is the viability of its, of its media and the viability is a commercial and, and economic uh, proposition as well as uh, a truth-seeking one. Is truth-seeking a viable commercial model in the current 
digital age? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And I'm, I'm not nearly as pessimistic as a lot of other people in the media. Like FBI, we've been around for 20 years. And when we first started, there were very, very few opportunities for young people to get into the media and journalism. One of the reasons we set it up was because there was just no first step of the ladder to get yourself onto. Um, and increasingly, I've seen all the people who come through and train with us get jobs in the industry if they want them. Mm. Not necessarily investigative journalist roles with major mastheads, but there are opportunities for so many more people to participate now than there used to be. So that makes me very optimistic. And I also think that in a country of 20 million people, there's at least a million of us every day who really want to know what the hell Scott Morrison should be talking about. I think there's at least a million of us who like to understand the budget. And I think there's at least a million of us who would like to have some deeper coverage about the future of the nation, about finance and the economy and national security laws and all the rest of it. So both because I've seen positive change at the coalface level Mm. and because I just think that you know think about the people that you know yourself it's a big country it's a big market it only needs a relatively small proportion of us to keep being interested in really good quality news and increasingly we are prepared to pay for it you know I'm paying for a lot more media than I used to now and I'm really enjoying it Mm. but John do you think that you know given Cassandra's analogy there about the 1 million out of 20 million interested in the truth that with a crowded media landscape more and more media organisations are going to try and nail the 19 million people who are slightly less interested in that truth. Oh, look, inevitably someone's going to go after a market of 19 million people. You can't stop them doing that. And, you know, who's to say that, uh, you know, the love of cat videos is an invalid love? Good. God bless them. Good luck to them, I reckon. But my take on this is that journalism has a future, it's just not our past. Uh, you know, most likely there is no future for mass media as we've understood it in the past simply because Google ate the business model mm. a long time ago. But that doesn't mean that the news media are dying. What's happening is that they're becoming disaggregated. And again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, one of my secret shames is uh, I love to read tech journalism. I never, ever read it in the mainstream press because it's crap. They get everything wrong all the time. Uh, whereas there are any number of tech blogs and tech bloggers, some of them individuals like John Gruber, some of them huge sites like The Verge, who are just really good at what they do. And they have focused in, in an atomized market, they've focused in on a particular sector and they've just provided the kind of depth and breadth that you don't necessarily get in in mass media so it's almost like the death of the department store if you look at a broadsheet newspaper as a department store where you could get everything but not in any particular depth so, you know that that model is is dying but that doesn't mean that you're not going to get small specialist houses that will cater to, to individual taste there will always be media my sort of only about the future is whether or not there are certain types of media that can fund themselves, things like, you know, beat reporting of local government and so on. And that, of course, raises questions about uh, the way young journalists are trained as well to react to that environment, but uh, that's a conversation I guess we'll have to save for another night because we're just about out of time here. Um, Thanks so much for your company out there in Radio Land, everyone. Thanks to my guests for their company, Cassandra Wilkinson, contributor to The Australian and President of FBI, Andy Park, journalist for The Feed at SBS, Claire Stewart, a freelancer, 
working with the ABC and Fairfax and John Birmingham, columnist for Fairfax. Thanks all for your time. And you've been tuned into Fourth Estate across the community radio network or on our website, fourthestate.org.au. Producing the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Thank you, Isabel Summerson, our EP. That's all for this week. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm. 